Welcome to the Bank Talk Podcast, the show where we talk to leaders and experts from the community banking sector. Whether you are a current CEO or aspire to be one, this podcast will give you valuable insights and advice on how to run your financial institution better. Each episode features a different topic and a guest who shares their experience and knowledge with us. Tune in and learn something new with Bank Talk Podcast. Hi, and welcome to Bank Talk. I'm Charlie Kelly, your host and partner at Remedy Consulting. Today, I asked uh, Scott Hildebrand uh, to come back on our podcast. Uh, Scott is the uh, managing director, head of Piper Sandler's uh, Financial Strategies. Scott's been a guest a few times before. And uh, the reason I asked him to join us is, as we attend conferences these days, it seems like dealing with liquidity continues to be a problem for CEOs, CFOs, you know, chief investment officers. Uh, I think everybody's trying to figure out if there's a magic elixir in this area to try to to uh, make sure that liquidity is not a problem for them. I thought I'd have uh, Scott spend a few more minutes with us today and just kind of uh, give us some understanding of what uh, Piper Sandler is telling their clients these days, maybe what he's hearing out there. See if there's anything going on that uh, Piper Sandler is telling their clients that maybe uh, listeners need to hear about. So without uh, further ado, let's get to Bank Talk. Hey, good morning, Scott. Uh, Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So, Scott, I noticed that you have three titles, Um, and I didn't realize this until I got your last email. You're a managing director at uh, Piper Sandler. You're the chief balance sheet strategist and the head of Piper Sandler Financial Strategies. How, how do you get three titles? Do you have to you have to buy in or what's the how's that it's work? It's actually really easy. You just write it in. Um, no, I think when you deal with anything boring and analytical that comes to our firm usually goes to me and my team, our team. And so I think they tried, they felt bad and they try to give me as many fancy titles as possible, but it really doesn't mean much, right? It, it, that's all. Well, of the three, I like chief balance sheet strategist the best. So yes. I don't know if that matters. You know, if they have to, if they come back to you and say, hey, we got to cut one of these. You know, now they're probably going to, no one really noticed it. Now they're going to probably come back and say, hey, I listened to Charlie's podcast and you need to cut <laughs> at least one of your titles down. So thanks a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry about that. You know, it's, uh, there's a lot of people that would like three titles. Not everybody can, can pull it off. So in this podcast just a little bit of the ground we covered previously the obviously the reason i called you up or uh, shot you an email was to say let's let's try to have a conversation around um you know just what is going on these days in liquidity you know how are people thinking about unrealized losses so we'll, we'll cover some of that ground again but then i want to you know really kind of dive into what advice are you giving you know what are the what are the uh, the levers that CIO, you know, chief investment officers and and chief financial officers can pull these days. So sure. you know, just as a as a framework, that's kind of what I'm hoping to talk to you about today. Set this up for us a bit, though. I, I know we've we've talked about this previously, but uh, I'm going to ask you a very specific question um, because not all of our listeners are investment professionals. So help the listeners understand what community FIs are dealing with in unrealized losses in their investment portfolios. Can you just spend a couple minutes on that? And it's a good reminder, and it kind of sets the stage of where we are today. But if everybody can go back in their minds a couple of years ago, 
and think about you know 2020 and 2021 in the banking industry, right? Interest rates zero. We're dealing with COVID, lack of lending. Um, the community FIs, the banks and credit unions are out there helping their communities through Triple P. But what it also brought to us was an enormous amount of dollars into the industry through stimulus. These banks and credit unions didn't get any really any new clients, but all of their current clients and customers had more dollars at the bank, which led the banks to have to be able or forced to invest, buy bonds because lending was down. So they were buying bonds and banks and credit unions buy bonds at always the worst possible time because they do it when they've got excess liquidity and to help manage interest rate risk. So they were buying assets two to three years ago, you know, probably starting with a 1% all the way up to maybe 2%. And then all of a sudden we saw what we've never seen is a record move in interest rates in 2022 in terms of how quickly rates went higher, the Fed attacking inflation. And all of a sudden, these banks and credit unions are left with fixed rate bonds on their balance sheet, earning one or 2% in a 5% world. And unfortunately, from an accounting perspective, but really from an economic perspective too, when you own an asset that's earning you way below what you currently could earn at the same asset, you've got what we call an underwater asset, right? You've got a loss, an unrealized loss on that on that bond. And if you had to go sell it today in the market, if you paid a dollar for it, you're getting about 90 cents back. And so that's uh, that's where we are from where the market is. But the reason that really came to light, as your as your listeners will remember for sure, in March, Silicon Valley was the classic example. They owned a lot of bonds, treasury bonds. They weren't worried about getting their proceeds back, but they had four or five years of maturity left until they were getting their money. The problem is everybody ran out of the bank, took their deposits, and when the bank wants to go sell those assets, they were nowhere near... Uh, the amount that they put in because they were underwater or at losses. That then sparked the examiners and boards of directors, management teams to say, wait a minute, we have to understand a little bit more about our mark-to-market risk in the bond portfolio. What if I need to sell those assets? What is that going to do to my capital position, my earnings stream? And so it really put everything into a frenzy. So it was a combination of higher interest rates quickly and a combination of Banks and credit unions not asking for it, but an enormous amount of money came into their institution through the stimulus programs, and they were forced to buy assets at all-time lows in rates. And that combination led to what we saw in Silicon Valley to some degree, and really what folks are dealing with even today. Folks are dealing with the fact that they're still sitting on assets way below the market, and yet they've got to go fund themselves because it's become more and more difficult to get money into the banks. They've got to go fund themselves at a lot higher rates, um, and it doesn't take three titles to figure out that if I'm I'm borrowing or gathering deposits at five, five and a half, and I'm sitting on assets at two, well, that doesn't work, right? That that over time can't make that up in volume, as I like to say. And so th- th- there's a lot of thought process around the balance sheet management right now because of that sim- simple uh, movement in in our industry. Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna go on a tangent with you again, uh, as we typically do. <laughs> I know back one of the earlier podcasts we had done, we were talking about hedging, mm-hmm. right? How does hedging, how does how does hedging come into this conversation? I don't really understand hedging, so give sure. me like, uh, you know, if if back then they had hedged, yeah, right, um, is that hedge against long term, hedge against short term? Like, what what does hedging mean in this context? 
Sure. Hedge, that's a great question. And, and, and so from a hedging perspective, I'll give you a clear and concise answer to your good question. Silicon Valley, right? They owned, as we just talked about, a lot of four and five year and even longer U.S. Treasury bonds. And if they and they did not hedge that risk, meaning I own a fixed rate asset in a market where rates can go higher, right? So I'm unhedged. Their cash flows are locked in, their interest, their earning is locked in. And more and more are doing it in the banking world. And I spend a lot of my time in boardrooms educating boards on this hedging topic. What banks could have done at that time, or Silicon Valley could have done at that time, is said, you know what? I don't need that much fixed rate exposure on my balance sheet when rates are at all-time lows. I like treasury bonds. I like the credit risk that there's really none. So what I can do is I can hedge that risk by swapping that fixed rate bond to a floating rate, exchanging cash flows with a dealer. And now the bank or credit union is left with an asset that actually floats with the market. So as short-term rates go higher, the bank or credit union earns more money. And as as the short-term rates go lower, they earn less, but they are now hedged to the market, hedging changes in interest rates. And so that, Charlie, is a big spike in use of interest rate swaps because now banks are realizing, credit unions are realizing, to manage my balance sheet in a very volatile time, sometimes hedges are necessary to keep a consistent spread and margin. And so I hope I did a decent job there walking you through that, but fire away with questions. Yeah, you did. And and the, the only question I have is, so I would, and again, I'm gonna I'm gonna dumb this down because that's the only way I can understand it. I, I would think of that almost it's not really an insurance product, but what you're saying is you're saying, hey, you know, to some degree, I'm you're not gonna get as high a rate as the highest fixed rate you can find out there today. But in exchange for that, you get to float. Right. In other words, in other words, you're paying a you're gonna pay something to to make sure that that piece gets done. That, that, yes. So the way I would dis- describe what you're saying is there's a yield curve, as we all know. And normal times, which is not right now, but normal times, and we'll say two years ago, from a yield curve perspective, the the the, the longer I went out for fixed rate cash flows, the more I would earn, right? So mm-hmm. I would give up some of that earnings to swap it to a floating rate. You're exactly right. That's the cost. And to use your term, insurance, I'll accept a little less earnings, but I now know that my cash flows will move with the market. The interesting dynamic, and we don't need to dive into this today, but the interesting dynamic right now is our yield curve is completely flipped upside down. And in fact, if I went out long and bought a fixed rate asset and swapped it to a floating rate today, I'd actually earn more money. Because the market's expectations, when you see an inverted yield curve, what they call it, right, is the fact that at some point, interest rates are going to go lower. The market is anticipating that. And so over time, in theory, your earnings will go down based on what the market's expectations are. Does that make sense? It does. So you're saying that you're saying that the long-term view is that I'm not going to have to pay as much as I do today to get this thing because you're on a floater, right? You're, you're floating right. along with it. Is that right? Yep. People hate when I say this, but but anyone who who has ever bet on a football game on an over-under, the interest rate swap world is nothing more than that. The market really sets what your fixed rate is and the equivalent fixed rate to a floating rate. There's a market for that at all times. It's incredibly liquid. I could tell you today on a screen, I could look really quick and say, okay, Charlie, you want to take that five-year fixed rate asset to floating? Here's what it's going to look like. Here's the cost or here's what you're going to earn. And here's the expectation of when that will change over time based on interest rates. The problem is, as we all know, nobody can predict the market. 
not even the market. And so that is constantly changing over time. And that's why banks are constantly scrambling a little bit to play defense around hedging to make sure they can deliver a consistent earnings stream and spread regardless of changes in interest rates. And that's always the challenge. Gotcha. Okay. That's that's good. That's helpful. Good. Okay. Um, one other side question that was not as part of our prep. <laughs> you always do this to me. Go ahead. I know. I know. Well, I'm I'm testing your knowledge. You have three titles, so I, you know, that's, oh, that's right. It's important that I I vet those titles at some. Let point. me tell you something. I I might have zero titles after this, but keep going. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, talk to me about ratios, and and by ratios I mean when when you talk liquidity, most. Mm-hmm. Banks and credit unions are responsible for making sure that they've got deposits on hand, liquid deposits, in the event that Charlie comes and closes his account. Right, going back to the you know Silicon Valley was a was an extreme example of that. But if if so many customers decide that they don't want their deposits there today, or they have to spend them, or what have you, right? Yep. There's this ratio between how many deposits versus your overall assets. Can you give us just a, like a couple of minutes on that so so that the listeners can understand why it's important to stay semi-liquid as a bank? Sure. Yeah, no, and I think you used a great example. And, and I keep bringing up Silicon Valley because it was an extreme, but you can learn a lot from an extreme. And the, the, the great way to think about all of this is that one of the key metrics that banks and credit unions look at consistently and constantly, and, and their examiners look at it as well, is what we call our loan to deposit ratio, right? Because if I took every single dollar that I got in from you, Charlie, into the bank and I lent it to uh, to someone else, every single dollar, then I'm, I'm a little nervous, right? Because the minute you say, you know what? I want to go buy that car or I want to go buy a house. I need to spend some cash. You're allowed to take that out immediately, right? Whereas I already lent your money out and now I've got a mismatch and I've got to go borrow money at higher rates and now I'm not earning as much. There's a whole concept as you go through this. And, and, and so banks are constantly measuring what we call liquidity, right? In different forms. It's a big reason why, Charlie, typically a bank in this country will have anywhere from 10 to 20% of their overall assets. So think of assets as loans and, and buying bonds. They'll have anywhere from 10 to 20% of their assets in cash and securities right? So securities being bonds. Because in the case of that that example, Charlie says, I want to take a lot of money out and I don't have dollars to cover it. I could go borrow or I could go sell the bonds I own, right? And that's why, again, going full circle to your original question, the unrealized losses become very, very much in the spotlight because now I own bonds that are underwater. I have to take a loss to raise proceeds. And so Banks are always looking at their loan to deposit ratio, trying to keep that at a level they feel comfortable with. And banks are are all different, are all over the map in terms of what that ratio looks like. But anywhere from 80 to 100% is typically what we see. Sometimes you'll see more than 100% loan to deposit, but rarely. And then also you're measuring your bond portfolio and the amount of cash you have so that from a liquidity perspective on any one given day, I've got enough cash to handle the proceed uh, leaving the bank. Does that is that helpful? That's very helpful. And and right. So the I'll dumb it down again with my, with an analogy, and you tell me if I've got this right. But if I'm lending, let's say I'm let's say I'm doing auto loans, which you know, or any other loan that might be considered a short termer. Okay. Right. In other words, you know, I don't know what the these days the life of the loan probably is extended because of interest rates. But in other words, people are hanging on to their vehicles, but. 
I, you know, I always thought about that as, you know, your auto loans roll off every three years. So, you know, that, that is a little different than maybe holding a mortgage that's 30, right? You have some chance that, that those are going to roll off and you have, again, liquidity showing back up. So, yes. uh, you know, I would think in that scenario, maybe the bank is not quite as nervous if they know what their roll off looks like, uh, you know, loans, loans falling off the books. Yep. Is well, that you, or getting paid yeah. off? I guess is probably a better way to put that, right? I would sum it up as the following. And back when I actually did work, uh, my job was to run what we call asset liability models. And you just described it. I looked, we would look at every single asset, every single loan by individual, right? So Charlie's loan, my loan, et cetera, et cetera. Project out those maturities, those cash flows based on the contractual setup and any changes that could happen due to what you just described, interest rate movements, so that I had a better feeling for how much money is coming back to me when, right? So that I can then make decisions on my liquidity position and the rest of the asset selection I make based on what my current balance sheet looks like. So there's a lot of work that banks and credit unions do that I don't think a lot of folks outside of our industry fully uh, appreciate. And that is they are constantly modeling all the cash flows from the asset side, which are loans and securities, and on the liability side, which are deposits and borrowings, to try to make sure I'm making enough money and I'm managing liquidity risk, I'm managing interest rate changes. It's a lot of work, right, to think about it from that perspective. But that's what folks do when you hear terms like ALCO or asset liability management. Okay. And that's that's really the, the goal there is, again, keep your keep your ratios in line with something you're comfortable with, your loan to deposit ratios, right? That's right. We are, in our industry, we are we are obsessed with metrics and key, key metrics and loan to deposits is certainly one. There's plenty of others that we could I could bore your listeners with, which I won't, but there's a lot of metrics we look at, but loan to deposit, I think is the simplistic way to think about it. And it, and it covers the majority of the way, uh, of the way institutions think about their liquidity position. Okay, great. Great answer. See, you're earning your three titles because we we haven't scripted any of this. You and I didn't talk about. I, I need to get back to the questions I was going to ask. Oh yeah. <laughs> so okay. So let's let's jump back into those. Okay. So we there is a liquidity problem per se, and I don't want to call it a problem because sometimes when I do that, I get I get phone calls. But um, so how is liquidity affecting lending? Like, sure. is it? You know, I, I'm assuming. I think what I heard for you say is, okay, the. The interest rates or the or the lack of liquidity um, makes you do some things that you didn't do before. In other words, this is not this may not be Charlie's deposits I'm looking for, right? But but how you know? Give me a give me an understanding of of what you do when you don't have deposits or you can't get your ratios adjusted. Yeah, no. I, I, so I think the way we need to think about this is in March when the world was on fire in the banking world, right? Um, there, that was a liquidity problem. That was flat out a liquidity problem. And so not Silicon Valley, but the other 99% of the banks in the country, everyone went out and got as much deposits and borrowed as much money as possible to, to make sure they were prepared for anything that could happen to their balance sheet from a runoff perspective. That to me was a look, that's a liquidity problem. You fast forward to where we are today. We don't have a liquidity problem in the sense of getting dollars in. We can we can find money again. We've kind of right-sized the industry from an asset perspective and a size perspective. What the problem today is, and it gets to your question, I promise, the problem today is it's still freaking expensive 
to get that money in today, right? And so if I'm paying on a CD or, or a deposit, I'm paying a 5%. Well, if I'm paying 5%, Charlie, I now have to go find loans that are what, 8.5% so I can earn you know, close to 9% so I can earn somewhere around 3.5% margin or spread before I even think about credit risk or anything else. And so what it is doing is the cost of liquidity is so expensive that it will, in my opinion, drive down lending growth. Because quite frankly, why am I going to lend as much as I used to when it's really expensive to get the dollars in? And I now have to make my borrowers pay me, what, close to 9%. And the last I checked, Charlie, paying 9% on anything is very difficult for a lot of for a lot of borrowers out there. Or think of a mortgage, you're in the, what, 7.5% range, and the bank or credit union went and got money to give you that money, and they're paying 5, 5.5. That's a really tight spread. You're not really being compensated enough. And so what I believe is you're going to see, and I think we've talked about this last time, you're going to see banks and credit unions smaller in asset size, or said differently, a lot less loan growth projected in 24 for those purposes. A good time that we're chatting right now, because I know for a fact, banks and credit unions right now are going through budget season. And they're saying, wait a minute, I don't know if loan growth makes sense because all of a sudden we get into this concept of quality of earnings versus quantity of earnings, right? Am I just putting stuff on with a very tight spread? Is that prudent use of my capital? Or or, or am I supposed to hunker down, slow this thing down? Let's see where the market goes. There's been all kinds of volatility in our market. And, and, And so I think that's part of the struggle that we have today. It's not a liquidity problem in terms of getting money. It's a liquidity problem in terms of how much it costs. And then what do I do with the dollars? All right. We covered a lot of ground there. Let me. I want to back you up just a little bit because sure. we went over a topic that, well, I need you to go over a topic that I really wanted to cover in here. So one thing I, I want you to help me understand is in the event that you can't get enough people to take your CD, right? So I'm talking about your own customers. Or you know maybe they're new customers that you know like your CD rate or what have you, but it's not depositors that are willing to take your CD rate or your money market rate or what have you. What are the other options out there when you talk about look? You know you can go find deposits, but you got to pay for them. Walk me through the alternatives to me as a as a banker asking my customers to buy my or to take my CD, right? Yep. What what other what can you walk me through some of those options and maybe how you I, you know maybe how you price it might be an unfair question but walk me through those other alternatives to getting deposits when things get tight. Yep, no problem. And and so there's a couple of, of of things to think about. Let's let's assume we've already addressed one of our ways. So I always think about this is how can I raise money? I think is the question. Whether it's a depositor today or or somewhere else. The first one we talked about. I could sell some of my bonds today, but I can't really because they're at a loss. So let's move on from that for a moment. Although you're going to see a lot of people selling bonds here in the fourth quarter, but that's a separate topic. So then we start thinking about, all right, on the liability side, if I can't find the depositors or I can't pay enough to get money in, I have some alternatives. You've heard terms like the Federal Home Loan Bank, a brokered CD. Those types of funding mechanisms are great tools for banks and credit unions to use to what I would call trim the hedges, right? You're always looking at both the asset and liability side and saying, okay, when are my key metrics getting out of whack? Uh-oh, I have a, a an issue here. I need to get a little bit more money in. I can pick up the phone and I can call my my federal home loan bank or, or a brokered market 
and go out and get dollars, pay whatever the market rates are for those dollars, and I can pick the term. Maybe I want it for two years. Maybe I want it for three months. Maybe I want it for five years. And that's what an asset liability manager, a chief financial officer is also thinking about on a daily, weekly, monthly basis is, do I need money? And what are my alternatives if I can't find it in its cheapest form, which is typically in normal times, my current depositors. Sometimes that's not even the case. Sometimes it's cheaper to go into the whole, what we call the wholesale market, which means it's not my customer. It's the federal home loan bank that raises money and, and, allow, and borrows and allows me to borrow from them. It's the brokered CD world where I, where it's now not my own customer. It's just the country. In general, people place money into any bank to find the best rates from a CD perspective. So there are definite, and there's some other alternatives, but those are the two key alternatives that you'll see on most bank and credit union balance sheets right now outside of their own deposits are federal home loan bank, what we call advances, and then also brokered CD market, which is a more a more national market of CDs, not Charlie, my customer CD. Is that helpful? It is very helpful. So I'm going to ask a couple of sub questions again. Sure. So I typically do. So a uh, brokered CD in in my head, where I go with that is I would say, okay, if it if I have to put five, and I, and I'll just use some general percentages here, but if it takes me five percent to get people to take my CD, if I go to a brokered CD. I'm probably paying a lot, quite a bit more than that, because if the if if somebody's willing to let me have their CD, right, they're going to want a premium. So, you know, if I would use five and six percent, you probably pay a, a premium. And I'm I don't want to even pretend I know what the premium is, but but it's going to be a higher number. Is that is that fair? And is it, and would you say the same thing with a federal home loan? Is it is it kind of comparable to what you would? You would have to pay somebody to take the CD, or is it? Are you generally going to have a premium there when you go out to these other markets? It's a great question, and and it's an interesting answer here because in normal times, so this is not normal times in our industry. In normal times, you're absolutely right. From a comparing a federal home loan bank advance, right, where I have to go to the wholesale market, is traditionally more expensive than what I would have to pay my own customers. So your thought process is correct. There is a normal premium, and, and those premiums change on a daily basis based on interest rates, based on supply, demand issues, et cetera. But normal times, a bank or credit union has to pay more, in theory, to borrow money from someone who's not their customer. That's the that's the a, the, 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 the easy, simplistic way to think about it. Okay. Unfortunately, we have an odd dynamic again right now where... There's and and Matt Bruner, who's on my team, he 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 always says this to me. There's only one positively sloped yield curve in this country, and that is the CD curve. What I mean by that is the further you, Charlie, go out on the yield curve to get to get a CD, you get paid more, right? If you go nine months versus six months, in theory, you get paid more. If you go out two years versus six months, a bank would be willing to pay you more. Ironically. If you looked at our yield curve, the treasury curve, it's inverted, right? So the further you go out today, actually you pay less in the wholesale market, i.e. federal home loan bank advances, because that is a market-driven funding mechanism, whereas deposits, as we all know, are somewhat driven by the market, but also driven by customers, supply, demand, other alternatives. And so it's a really interesting dynamic right now, whether I'm supposed to go pay a CD at five and a half percent, or maybe I can go 
find another way to drive some liquidity today, i.e. a federal home loan bank advance or a brokered market or whoever else, and maybe I can do it in cheaper form because of the shape of the yield curve. So I want your listeners to know, broadly speaking, you are spot on. There's always should be a premium for, for paying wholesale or non, non-customer money. Sometimes, like in today's environment, in theory, that could be different. Hmm. Wow, that's fascinating. I mean, it does make sense, right? Because if the market believes that interest rates are going to drop, they're not going to pay too long term at that at those same rates. That's right. But try okay. try telling your try telling your clients that, right? right when they're right. putting money in, they're like, "No, I don't care, Scott, what you're telling me, because I'll just go somewhere else and get it." And that's you know, everybody has it, it, the brokered CD world is a great way to think about it, Charlie. Everybody, if you have got a Charles Schwab account, a Fidelity account, right? You you can go right now and say you have five thousand dollars in your cash account. You, they, they'll give you a list of of banks that are basically posted rates, and you can say, "Huh, I'll take five thousand dollars of that one that's posted out there in the market. I can earn five and a half percent, and that's a brokered CD." So it's really easy today. To, to, to move your money around. And it's really easy to find higher rates, whether it's in the banking industry or the treasury market or anywhere else. Okay. No, and that's good. I know we talked about that a little bit on the previous kind of, uh, podcast where we were saying, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a loyalty thing too, right? I mean, if you think about it, people only want the highest rates. They don't, they don't necessarily have to go to their bank to get it. So from a, you know, from a, if you're going to put a CD out there, you got to reel in enough fish. They might not be your own fish, right? <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> they're going you know, yeah. to be whoever you know, whoever's willing to take it at that that uh, percentage. That interesting. And I think we we talked a little bit about that last time too. I think our our industry in general, between technology, demographics, and customer behavior, have gone from a world of a lot of loyalty and a little bit of trust to a little bit of loyalty and a lot of trust. And I say trust, meaning. 10, 15, 20 years ago, you polled 10 people in this country. I bet you seven or eight would not have felt comfortable moving money on their phone from bank to bank. You you look where we are today and eight out of 10 say to you, I have no problem today moving money from Charlie's bank to Scott's bank. I trust that that works, right? And so that's a double-edged sword. It's great and efficient for your clients and customers. But what I believe it's done is it's it's removed a little bit of loyalty because I have more trust in others that I can move money around. And that is the underlying dynamic of what our entire industry is going through as they think about the next five to 10 years, what is my deposit ba- uh, balance sheet side of the world going to look like? It's different than what it looks like 10, 15, 20 years ago when I knew a lot of my depositors had a lot of loyalty staying with me. They accept less to stay with me because I provide a lot of good products and services. That will remain. It's just going to get harder. And you've got to think differently about how you earn the loyalty side again. We've got to re-earn the loyalty a little bit. That's great advice. It's I mean it is and and I think you're spot on. The loyalty as it as it relates to this specifically, which is where am I going to put my money for the next six months? I, you know, I would argue that that's probably the least loyal I've seen customers. You know, because yes, it's, it's it's right there in front of you. The, you know, it's one's paying five, the other one's paying four point seven five. So which one are you going with? Right, and and with the click of a button or an app, it's done. I can move it, and yeah. that's and that and there lies the the challenge. And so we just as banks and credit unions have to think a little bit differently about what attracts loyalty. It used to be the loyalty was attracted because it was just your community. 
you know, at, at your church, at your country club. You knew the folks there. They banked with you. They loved you. You provided great service. We still provide great service and products. It's just the way the mechanism works now is it's so tech-driven. And the demographics of the younger folks in general, having grown up with iPhones versus folks that didn't, it's a different dynamic. And we have to think about why the younger generation is going to bank at your bank. It's a different answer than 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 your parents' answer. And that is where banks are focused right now from a marketing, technology, and risk perspective. What attracts Charlie to come to my bank today differently than what it did 10, 15 years ago? And there's lots of stories we could get into. I won't bore you. But but that's an underlying theme you're going to hear more and more about. So let me let me ask you another question. Now, you, you touched on this before, but I want to just kind of, I want to get your thoughts on it. So interest rates have risen, which of course is going to probably stifle loan demand. I think you had touched on that before. Is it also, I'm a chief investment officer and I'm thinking that, you know, my cost of funds is 5%. I Historically, I've made three, three and a half on that, which means, you know, immediately you're sort of at eight and a half percent. And that's, you know, very, very generic because there's, of course, all kinds of loan types, et cetera, right? Yep. Is, has, have you seen with the CEOs out there, the CFO, CIOs, have they said, I'll take a lower percentage? And I think you touched on this a little bit. You were saying sort of volume-driven versus quality-driven, mm-hmm. right? Are they willing to take a little bit of a lower percentage to get the loans? Or are there other alternatives that just don't take the loan? If I don't take the loan, well, what am I back to investments? I mean, how does how does that dynamic work of, I'm not getting my three and a half, therefore I'm not lending. Um, right. Can you just touch on that a little bit more? Sure. Um, and, and I would tell you that, you know, most of the time, the uh, the, the financial institutions will choose uh, quantity of earnings or volume of earnings um, and, 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 and satisfy another customer, get another loan on the book. It gives them opportunities to cross sell, right? It, it, it makes some sense. It's not just black and white in terms of the spread. The problem today, as you alluded to, Higher interest rates, one, it's tougher to find enough folks to borrow at those levels, but also you can't open the Wall Street Journal or any other you know thing you want to read about the industry without people saying, well, at some point with the rates this high and continue to go higher, aren't we going to see credit issues? So you start thinking to yourself as a CEO, is this the time that not only has it's gotten more expensive for me to get money, to go out and lend at a time when I've never seen some of these companies I'm lending to or individuals I'm lending to handle seven, eight, nine percent. So that's playing a role in the slowdown and people choosing probably quality of earnings over quantity right now because there's that credit on, on uncertainty. So then you say to yourself, if I'm not making a loan, I think this is your question. Well, what am I doing with my money? Well, the first thing I'm doing is returning it. <laughs> I'm not going to pay five and a half percent or any other amount that if I don't need it. So what's happened is the pendulum always swings in our industry too fast and too far. What we saw after March was everyone went and got a lot of money because there was a lot of concern about runoff. Now that we've stabilized a little bit, right? We talked about stabilization of deposits. It's still expensive, but the stabilization of it. Now what people are contemplating is saying, if I'm not making as many loans, and 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 quite frankly, if I went and bought a bond, I'd earn roughly what I'm borrowing at. Why don't I just pay off the borrowings, the wholesale funding first? So you're seeing a lot of folks pay down ba- their balance sheet by paying off borrowings or debt. It's kind of like it, you know an individual has a credit card 
And when rates were low, they didn't mind keeping a balance. Now it's like, wait a minute, why am I keeping a balance when my rate is 15%? I'm going to pay that off instead of going to buy something. And that's what's happening on bank balance sheets right now. They're shrinking a little bit because they're saying, look, I don't need to, the, the lending isn't really there for multiple reasons that I'm going to start paying off high cash borrowings. I'm going to stop paying five and a half percent. And eventually the pendulum will swing back uh, to the point where our, our deposit in this country won't be uh, able to earn as much as they are right now because people are figuring out right now what 2024 looks like, what their balance sheet needs are going to be. And so you've got options now where it's not just, I, I am not going to make a loan, so I'll buy a bond. It might be, let me pay off funding or let me lower some rates and see if money leaves. And I don't mind that as I shrink my balance sheet a little bit. So that was a lot, but but there's a lot there to think through that. Okay. So if, is there a scenario in your opinion, I mean, is are you saying that there might be a scenario where do nothing is the best, the best option? Well, here, here's how I would say it. I wouldn't call it doing nothing. I would say this way: we are post hurricane when it comes to balance sheet management and liquidity. Meaning, between 2022 and, and 2023 rate increases, Silicon Valley, the liquidity mess, right? That was the hurricane. Now the dust is settled, and everyone's now looking at their homes and saying, okay. I don't like this. This was not that great during this. Let me fix this. And that's what we're going through. So what I would say a little bit differently is instead of doing nothing, you know what people are actually doing? They're evaluating shrinking their balance sheet quicker than waiting and doing nothing by selling some of those assets, like in the bond portfolio that's earning me 2%, selling them, raising some money and taking that money and paying off the high cost funding. So they're kind of going instead of waiting for it to bleed, right? Like you, you can you can bleed through your margin for a while, a two percent asset funded with five percent borrowing, right? I don't like that math. It doesn't look good, but it's part of a bigger balance sheet, but it's still on there. What banks are saying today is, you know what? We're heading into the fourth quarter. I'm looking at my budget next year. I don't need all these bonds at two and these borrowings at five and a half or funding at five and a half. I'm going to shrink. And I'm going to do it now instead of waiting and doing nothing. So that's really what people have now taken, taken some time, reassessed their balance sheet, reassessed their home after the hurricane and said, actually, I want a smaller, tighter balance sheet. And the way I can do it today is get rid of this, what I call inefficient leverage, right? It's underwater, meaning I don't mm -hmm. even earn as much as I'm paying out. Let me strip that out. Let me recognize the loss today instead of bleeding it through margin shrink my balance sheet and prepare myself for next year. So basically as a as a CEO then I'm sitting there thinking okay if if my books can take a hit for the year because that loss would be this year's loss. Right? There there may be some value in as a long-term strategy to say I'll take the loss, right? My my investors know I got to take something. Yep. Um I'll take the loss today so that it looks it looks better and I have a few more options later. You're, is that how they you, they're thinking about it, or that's that's right? Because whether I take the loss today or I take it for the next three years, every single quarter in my margin, isn't it kind of a zero sum game? So if it is from a market perspective, which one would you rather be? And that's what banks are evaluating as we speak. I can tell you, I'm on so many calls with boards, with CEOs, with chief financial officers, talking through the math, the optics, and the economics of should I sell things at a loss, shrink my balance sheet, 
and better prepare myself for 24 because what I will tell you is that almost every institution is not happy with their budgeted margin next year when they're realistic about it. So what what can we do? These are some of the things to your point we can do. We got through 23. We're almost over 2023. Let's clean out the closet. Let's clean out the attic and and get myself ready for the next couple of years. And so that's what's getting done right now, or at least being contemplated all over this country right now. We're Hmm. basically getting rid of all the COVID money, for lack of better terms. We're shedding the extra 10 pounds we shouldn't have gained, but it really wasn't our fault. We're getting rid of that. And it, and it's annoying and frustrating, but over a long period of time, we're going to feel better about it. Yeah, that's great. Oh, boy, that's an interesting perspective. Never would have, never would have picked it up, but it certainly makes a ton of sense. I mean, and, and specifically this time of year, right? When you're getting near, near your year ends and, right. and just trying to decide, you know, when do you take the, when does the pain occur today or tomorrow? I think it, I think it is who do you, what do you want to look like in 24 or 25 is important. I think it's really important. Uh, to, to make sure that the vision is clear, that your your employees and everyone understand that you may be shrinking, but the purpose around that, I think that's messaging is really important. Messaging is really important on lost trades and things like that is as well. Um, and so I'd say the only other thing that I would mention is that, look, there there is still unknowns around what types of regulatory changes could happen post the hurricane we saw in March, right? We don't know exactly what that's going to look like. So I think people are starting to amp up and prepare for that to see what the reaction from examiners could be and the changes. Um, And also people are just, quite frankly, hunkering down a little bit from a credit perspective. What is the credit markets going to look like? Are we going to have the soft landing, et cetera? So you can't predict, you can prepare. We're preparing our balance sheets for multiple changes. And that's the best way we can do, the best thing we can do for, for what's probably going to be an unfortunately, again, a tough 2024 if the market plays out the way it looks like right now. Okay, great. Well, Scott, thanks again. As usual, it's 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 always intellectually challenging because I don't really understand your space all that well. So it's it's good to. I mean, I, I think you do a good job educating, and that's that's very helpful. Well, thank you very much, and um, I, I really pre- I do as always enjoy these conversations. Appreciate the, uh, the 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 back and forth and the dialogue, and I love that you asked me questions that you didn't prepare me for. That's more fun, anyways, Charlie. You're you're good at it. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks for joining us on Bank Talk today. Thank you. Okay, so that's it for Bank Talk today. And what I said to Scott at the end of this was true. I, I always enjoy having him on because he, he challenges me intellectually. It's not a space that we're I, I'm in, so I just I always find him. We always go long. It's <laughs> just about every time we do one with him. But uh, there's so much to cover that I you know to me it's just always interesting talking to an industry leader and making sure that you you pick his brain a little bit. So hopefully everybody found the same through this podcast. Uh, that's it for today. So I'm Charlie Kelly, your host for Bank Talk. Have a good day and keep on learning. Thank you for listening to the Bank Talk podcast brought to you by Remedy Consulting. To reach out to Scott Hillenbrandt, go to PiperSandler.com. Once again, PiperSandler.com for more information. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and share our work with others. Thanks again, and we'll see you in the next episode.